hear from God's word now and then um, before Stephen comes to speak to us. Uh, and Lynn's going to come and do that uh, for us. actually going to be reading um, two shortish passages and we're starting in 1 Thessalonians um, first, uh, chapter 4 verse 13 and that's on page 1188 in the church bible brothers and sisters we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. We're now going to move on. It's on the next page in the Church Bible and we're starting in chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth, or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? And now you know what is holding him back, so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so, Till he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendour of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie, and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all, who, all will be condemned 
who have not believed the truth, but have delighted in wickedness. Thank you, Lynn, and thank you, Pete, for leading. I see we are a select group this evening. Well, that's fine. Those of us who were here this morning, and I think it's quite likely actually that everyone here this evening was also here this morning, um, you'd have heard Richard Lord preach on, one, on, on Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, our memory verse for the week, namely, he who has, together, he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, without having planned it consciously um, in the way that these things often happen, um, the day of Christ Jesus, that is to say the Lord's return, is the subject of my sermon this evening. Not because I had particularly um, looked at what this morning's sermon was going to be about, what the memory verse was, but simply because I've been reading through one and two Thessalonians in my um, daily Bible reading over the past few weeks, and these two passages coming so close together um, caught my eye. Can we just have the uh, thing up, please, Russell, if it's uh, working? And I'll make sure that I can work it because these things rarely work first time. Just the title page? That's okay. Yep. That's okay, there we are. And I'll just make sure that, oh, there we go. And I'll just make sure that what I expect to happen happens when I press a button. Yes, it does, very good. Yes, yes. So do you spend much time thinking about how the world will end. Um, lots of people seem to, have say, seem to have something to say about the subject, both within the Christian world and outside the Christian world. And it's not at all difficult to get confused and anxious and even a bit shaken, whether it's because we fear the end or because we fear it will never come or because we long for it and it can't come soon enough. I'm just going to move this out of the way. Good. There we are. But what will it mean for us and for our loved ones when it does? Now, it's obvious from looking at the two passages that Lynn read to us earlier on that this was very much a live issue within the church at Thessalonica. And what we're going to do this evening is to compare those two passages in which we find that the Thessalonian Christians fervently believe the essential Christian teaching that the Lord is coming again, and yet they get confused about the details, and as a result of that, they become distressed. So if you want a text to um, anchor our thoughts, then it's um, 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2, uh, 1 and the first part of verse 2, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed. Okay. So it's not only God's word that talks of the end times, and we're in one of those periods of history when the secular world likes to sort talk up threats to humanity as well. I say one of those periods of history because it's not the first such time. I think almost all of us here are old enough to remember the seemingly imminent threat of nuclear war. Uh, some of us will remember it from the 1950s and the Cuban Missile Crisis in the 60s. Um, I remember it from the late 70s and early 80s when the uh, government uh, distributed uh, leaflets to every household uh, advising us what to do in the event of uh, nuclear war. 
how to uh, hide under the stairs and to uh, stock up on uh, clean water and toilet rolls um, in the uh, imminent danger of a nuclear attack. And needless to say, that uh, leached into uh, popular culture as well. And for a period, you know, this was a time when I was in my uh, early teens, I suppose, um, this seemed like a very real and imminent threat. Of course, nowadays, it's the threat of a changing climate that is being talked up. And whatever actual changes there may or may not be in the climate, um, that's thrown into shade by the heating up of rhetoric on the subject. We've had climate change, we've had climate crisis, we've had climate emergency, and now we've got a global boiling, if we're to believe the Secretary General of the United Nations. And while it's tempting, I must admit I'm tempted, to chuckle at this sort of stuff, there are lots of people who find it genuinely distressing, and particularly young people do seem to find this gener um, generally distressing, or genuinely distressing. And yet in the Bible, it couldn't be clearer that the world, or at least humanity's presence within the world, will not end as a consequence of rising sea levels or disruption to the climate or anything that human beings do to the world around us. We have that in black and white in Genesis chapter 8, when after Noah emerged from the ark, God said, never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. And in the next chapter, I'm afraid I can't see either of these screens, I'm just going to hope that I'm pressing the button in the right place. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. This is the sign of the covenant that I am making between you and every living creature with you, a covenant for generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. By profession, I'm an optical physicist. I'm fascinated by the fact that God chose an atmospheric phenomenon such as the rainbow to be his covenant. And I have some ideas of my own which I look at from time to time as to why it might have been that no rainbow would have appeared before the flood. But that's completely outside the scope of this evening's service, so you needn't worry, I'm not going to talk about that now. Either way, the Bible is just as clear that the end will come with the return of Jesus not by anything else, but with the return of Jesus, and that at a time known only to God the Father. And therefore we come to the passage in 1 Thessalonians 4 that Lynn read for us. And if you want points, my first point this evening, which is that when he comes, it will be a blessing for all believers, past and present. Now from what we read, I think, in, uh, um, one, in, in, in 1 Thessalonians 4, it seems that the Thessalonians understood the point that Jesus was going to return and take to himself all who were alive at that time. But what about those that weren't? That seemed to be, the pro that, that seemed to be what was distressing them. What, what about those who had already fallen asleep, who had died before his return? What about them? Were they lost? And Paul clearly understands that the Thessalonians were concerned enough about this that he needed to address the question head on. And so he says in verse 13 that he doesn't want them to be ignorant or uninformed, I think was the uh, word used in the NIV, lest they should have sorrow 
And by implication, the best antidote to sorrow is knowledge. And therefore, what Paul simply does is to set out for them the biblical teaching about what will happen on that great day when Christ returns. Now, he goes into much more detail about this in 1 Corinthians 15. If you want everything that's in 1 Thessalonians 4 and much more, then look to 1 Corinthians 15. But uh, um, we're going to stick to 1 Corinthians 4 for now. In these verses in, Corinth in Thessalonians, these two essential truths are covered. First of all, that those who have died in faith will be resurrected, and that will happen before those who are still alive at the time will be taken up. And conversely, after the resurrection of the faithful, then those who are still alive will be taken up to be with Christ. Now, as I said, in 1 Corinthians, Paul expands on this, and he explains that those who have died and are resurrected are like seeds that are planted in the ground. And just like seeds that are planted in the ground and grow up into, in, in, into plants, so seeds that are planted in the ground grow to be something far more glorious than they were before they were planted as seeds. This is an illustration that Jesus himself uses in, uh, in John chapter 12, verse 24. There is it up there, so I don't need to read it. So those who die... Sorry, those who die are transformed into their glorious resurrection bodies when they are resurrected on that great day, just as Jesus himself was resurrected and given his resurrection body. However, those who don't die, those who are still alive in their normal mortal lives on the day when Jesus returns, God's work in them still needs to be completed. And therefore, they must be transformed. They must have their corruptible human bodies changed into incorruptible resurrection bodies, like that of Christ's own, or like the bodies of Moses and Elijah that Peter, James, and John encountered on the mountain of transfiguration. For those of us who are alive, or for those who are alive on the earth at the time that Christ returns, that will be the point at which all of God's good work in them will be completed. Now, in fact, the more you think about it, the, thing, uh, the more you think about what was troubling the Thessalonians, the, stronger, the stranger it seems. Because if they were concerned that the people who they knew that had died before Christ returned were going to be lost, then what about those that they didn't know who had died long before? The Old Testament saints, the first Christian martyrs, the thief on the cross, even Job, who most, lived in, who most likely lived before Abraham's time, could say this. I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end he will stand on the earth, and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I, will, I myself will see him with my own eyes, I not another. It's, it's hard to see how the, uh, uh, how, the, um, how the Thessalonians could have been concerned when they had, when, when they had um, testimonies like that in the Old Testament scriptures, but uh, I don't know. As an aside, um, the reasons for thinking that Job may well have lived as long ago as even before Abraham, and some people say it was actually the first of the books to be written in the Bible, um, are quite interesting and quite compelling, just as an aside. He was clearly a godly man, and he made animal sacrifices to God to atone for sin, and yet he appears to know nothing about the formal system of priests and offerings brought in by Moses. 
And something else we read about Job in the book of Job is he lived to be at least 210 years old, which was quite common in the centuries immediately after the flood. But lifespan decreased rapidly after that. Abraham himself only lived to 175. Moses only lived to 120. And 70 was already regarded as a normal lifetime by Moses' time. So actually the, uh, um, the argument or the reason for believing that Job may be very ancient indeed is quite compelling, but there we are. The point I'm trying to get to with respect to the Thessalonians is that we all cause ourselves a lot of distress by forgetting things we really ought to know. In all likelihood, most of the Thessalonian church were young Christians from Gentile backgrounds who wouldn't, in fact, have been steeped in the Old Testament and who lived at a time when not much of the New Testament has been written yet or had been written yet. In fact, just as many people think that Job was the first book in the Old Testament to be written down, there are lots of people who think that 1 Thessalonians was the first book of the New Testament to be written down. And again, there are a fairly compelling reason for that as well. But anyway, there was for sure a lot that they did know. And before we turn to the second passage that Lynn read for us from 2 Thessalonians, I'll just set the scene for a moment by reading ahead a little into the next chapter of 1 Thessalonians, into chapter 5, where Paul goes on to say, I think I've got it here. No, I've gone the wrong way. Not there. Bingo, yeah. Okay, right. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, peace and safety, Destruction will come upon them suddenly, as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, and let us be awake and sober. And if you want a title for the second point, it's this. When the day of Christ Jesus arrives, it shouldn't take us by surprise. Now you're probably, hopefully, going to be relieved to know that I'm not going to attempt any sort of blow-by-blow account of the events leading up to the Lord's return. Firstly, we haven't got time. Secondly, I'm here as a lay preacher, and these things are way, way above my pay grade. Learned and godly men disagree profoundly about many of the details of what scripture foretells. And that shouldn't surprise us at all. Think of the Lord's first coming, foretold in detail by hundreds of texts in the Old Testament. Now imagine that you're a godly, well-educated Jew who lives in um, Jerusalem. You know the Old Testament scriptures in huge detail and in great depth. And the year is 10 BC. How well do you think you would have done in predicting all that was going to happen over the following few decades? You may have guessed that a Messiah was going to arrive sometime soon. Daniel had foretold that, more or less, and, uh, but even so, it, there, don't seem, there don't seem to have been that many people, apart from the Magi, the wise men from the East, who'd really understood and were ready and looking out for him. Even so, you would have known that Messiah when he came, would come from Galilee and from Bethlehem, 
hangabout, and from Egypt. How was that going to work? Um, he was going to be an all-powerful king who would crush his enemies before him. And he was going to be meek and lowly and riding on a donkey. And he was going to be the suffering servant who was despised and rejected. Well, how, would he make sense? how is he going to make sense of that? So if you had been in the position of that godly Jew in 10 BC, you would have said, well, I believe this, but I can't make head or tail of it. It's full of contradictions. How can all of these things possibly be true at the same time? And yet, in the providence of God, as we read the New Testament accounts, we can see that in the outworking of history, every one of those details was fulfilled, including the things which seemed wholly ir ir irreconcilable with one another at the beginning. So any attempt to um, tell the story of future history before it happens by piecing prophecies together is... Um, a dangerous game and I'm not going to attempt it, but the most we can hope for is that we can recognize these things as they appear. Even so, the one thing that the Thessalonians were clearly expecting, which turned out not to be correct, was that the Lord's return was really imminent, a matter of months or years, not decades, certainly not centuries. Was this reasonable? Well, on the face of it, yes, it was. Because when Jesus spoke of his coming again in Matthew 24, I think I've got that here, yes indeed, which is also recorded almost verbatim in Mark 13 and Luke 21, he talked about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, and then he segued straight into the end times and his, ret and his return, as though there would be no gap between them, concluding with, and it's highlighted there, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things are fulfilled. And clearly the most natural interpretation of those words would be to say that not only the destruction of the temple, which we know for sure did in fact happen in 70 AD, but also the Lord's return and the end of all things was going to happen within the lifetimes of the people who heard his words at the time. In other words, really imminent. And we all know that that's not what happened. And if it had, none of us would be here today. So how are we going to interpret this? I confess I don't have a definitive answer but consider this, considering the difficulty of a passage like this, we might expect that unbelievers, both in the following generation and in more modern times, might pinpoint Jesus' words and say, look at that, Jesus got it wrong. He said he'd come again within that generation, and he didn't. But in fact, we don't see that, and that's not what happens. In fact, there is a much more common line of attack, attack used against the trustworthiness of Jesus' sayings, namely the idea that Jesus actually didn't did predict the destruction of the temple at all, and that if he appeared to, and if the gospel accounts say that he did, that they must have been written after 70 AD, and that people made it all up. But, and that's pretty much, as I understand it, the almost unanimous position adopted by liberal theologians, that is to say, ones who don't accept the truth of the Bible, and liberal Bible scholars today. But then think for a moment, honestly. If you were going to make up an entirely false story about Jesus predicting the destruction of the, attempt, the temple after it had already happened, surely you wouldn't then attach to it a prediction of another event which was supposed to happen straight after, and yet didn't. That wouldn't make any sense at all. And therefore, when we look at this text, 
the very thing which makes it difficult to understand for us is also the thing that reassures us that it's true and that these are Jesus' actual words. We do, however, still need to understand what it means. And um, of all the various interpretations of it as I've read, the one that rings truest, to me at least, is that of John Calvin, who said this, Christ simply teaches us that in one generation, events would establish all that Jesus had said. Within 50 years, the city was wiped out, the temple raised, the whole region reduced to appalling devastation. Although the same evil continued without a break for many centuries to follow, Christ spoke truly, saying that the faithful would actually and openly experience before the end of one generation how true his oracle was. In other words, if you like, the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, which really did take place before that generation had passed away, was like a down payment, guaranteeing that everything else that Jesus warned about in his coming was going to be fulfilled in its proper time. That, I think, is an interpretation which makes sense, and I'm happy with that. But even so, I can still understand why the, why the Thessalonians at the time might have, been might have become confused. And if they were expecting Jesus' return to be imminent any, 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 any year, any month, even, even any week, and it wasn't happening, then um, hence the confusion that they were beginning to wonder whether in fact maybe it had already happened and they'd missed it. And that leads on to my third point this evening. Everything will happen, but in its proper order. Every, everything we read about the end time prophecies in the New Testament make it clear that once Jesus does return, there'll be no missing it. Um, for example, a couple of verses from the Gospels again, if anyone tells you there he is out in the wilderness, don't go out. Or here he is in the inner rooms, don't believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Matthew 24, 26 to 28. There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. People will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. And at that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Luke 21, 25 to 27. So it seems to us extraordinary that the Thessalonians could think that all that has happened already and they'd missed it. I used to work in California for about 10 years and there was one occasion when I slept through quite a large earthquake, certainly one large enough to throw things off the shelves and onto the floor and I just missed it completely. But this is something of a completely different magnitude. Not even the dead will sleep through this when it comes. No one will be able to look back at Christ's second coming and talk about when that happened in the past tense, unless they're either living in their resurrected bodies in the new heaven and the new earth, or in hell. But where did they get such an extraordinary idea from? Even Jesus, in that passage from Matthew 24 that I just read out, predicted that people would say such things. But in this specific case, it seems to be 
that someone had written to the church pretending that they were Paul and putting and put this idea into their heads. And goodness knows what else they might have put into their heads as well. Paul says in verse 2 of 2 Thessalonians 2, by letter, as if from us. So perhaps that's why Paul is so concerned that in this letter, they're left in no doubt at all that it really is from him. He ends it in verse 17 of chapter 3 by saying, I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand, which is the distinguishing mark of all my letters. This is how I write. And we can read similar things to that at the end of 1 Corinthians 16.21, Galatians 6.11, Colossians 4.18, and finally in verse 19. Anyway, having denied that they got this idea of the Lord's having come from anything that he wrote, that he wrote Paul goes on to reiterate to them the reason why it, possibly, why it couldn't possibly be true, no matter who taught it. Namely, things have to happen in their proper order. And if, everything, if not everything has happened that needs to happen, then the end is not yet. Now, if you want me to describe in detail who this man of sin, the son of perdition in uh, 2 Thessalonians 2 will look like, well, I'm sorry, not going to attempt it. Think again of that hypothetical educated Jew in Jerusalem in 10 BC. All I will say in this is this, and I'll finish with this. In every age of church history, when people contemplate the prophecies of the end times, they tend to pick out the aspects that seem most pertinent to their own day. So in Victorian and Edwardian times, before the First World War, when the arc of history seemed to be getting steadily better and better, in all things, there was, um, there, were, there, was, there was increasing prosperity, there was freedom for the gospel over much of the world, especially in the areas which were marked pink on the map. Few people talked or wrote about the great apostasy and the tribulation mentioned before the, world, before the Lord returned. It was widely assumed that things would just keep on getting better and better and better with the preaching of the gospel lead, leading to convergence and social reforms, sorry, and social reform and the glorious period of the church's reign on earth, leading, hmm, lasting a thousand years perhaps, and then culminating in the Lord's return at the end of all of that to finish the work, a belief known as post-millennialism, if, you, if, if, if you're into that sort of thing. But not many people talk like that nowadays. Nowadays, when now in our Western societies, we seem to be in steep moral decline and the church is under increasing pressure, and with more and more restrictions on freedom being threatened in the name of enforcing diversity or saving the planet, then prophecies like this one in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 seem all too imminent. Is it? I've no idea. But I do know that whether it is or it isn't, God is faithful and his word will, he'll, his word will be fulfilled come what may. Our responsibility is to be watchful, to be obedient and to be ready so that we recognize these things as they happen. And if we do this, then we won't be shaken, but we can stand firm till the end. Thank you.